Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blemson and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the global news stories that matter. The high street fashion empire of Philip Green is on the rocks. The UK retail tycoon has secured creditor support for a three-year overhaul that will involve rent reductions, store closures and a halving of the company's pension deficit reduction payments. But will this be enough to save the business? Matthew Vincent discusses this question with Jonathan Ford and Jonathan Ely. Jonathan, tell us a bit about Philip Green and his fashion empire. I mean, how many stores are there and which are the best-known brands? So the empire was put together from two big acquisitions, uh, that of Sears in 1999 and that of Arcadia in 2002. And Arcadia is, of course, the one that gives its name still to Sir Philip's fashion empire. Four-fifths of the revenues are made in the UK and Ireland from about 560 stores. And there are also concessions in department stores like Debenhams and in some branches of Tesco. Now, by far the best known of the brands is Topshop, which accounts for more than half of the sales. But there are also a series of smaller brands, Burton, Wallace, Dorothy Perkins, Miss Selfridge and Evans being the main ones. If my memory of back issues of Vogue serves me, Topshop was until recently regarded as something of a success. Celebrities clamouring to be associated with it, going to catwalk shows. And Sir Philip Green was the person who was credited with getting it that high profile and that level of success knighted for it. How has this managed to go wrong? So there are many causes and they fit broadly into two buckets, if you like. One is the sort of external factors over which Sir Philip had relatively little control. And the other is the things that he did have influence and control over. Now, outside his control was quite simply the competition got much better. So back in 2005, when he was knighted, Boohoo, a fashion retailer that sells online, and will turn over over a billion pounds this year, did not even exist. And there's a whole series of those types of businesses that have emerged. Boohoo, Misguided, ASOS, people like that. Primark has really upped its game. H&M has opened hundreds of stores in the UK. Zara has expanded quite aggressively in the UK. And also, consumers have become much more kindly disposed to ordering clothing online. Something that, it seems a long time ago now, but if you go back to the early noughties, people were saying, oh, people will never order clothing online because they'll want to try it on. Um, Well, they do try it on. They try it on at home and send back the bits they don't want. And then the things that he has done wrong, I think... He basically took a lot of money out of Arcadia in the early noughties, um, famously paid his wife a £1.2 billion dividend, didn't really invest enough back into the businesses. They're weak online, their websites and their whole logistics are regarded as behind competitors. And along with many other retailers from the sort of pre-internet era, they're finding now that they've simply got too many shops. And so now Sir Philip finds himself, as you say, with too many shops needing to close some of them needing to have the rent reduced on the others under this so-called company voluntary arrangement. Can you just explain exactly what a CVA is and why he needed it? So a CVA is a peculiarly British form of insolvency that basically gives the company a window of opportunity to reach an agreement with its creditors to reduce its payments and its overheads and therefore its obligations. 
And actually, any creditor can be compromised under a CVA. But when it comes to retailers, it's almost invariably the landlords that are. They face cuts to rents of between 25 and 50 percent on about 194 out of the 500 or so stores. The other very significant aspect of this CVA is that there is an agreement with a pension regulator. Arcadia's pension fund is about £500 million in deficit, and the company had been making annual payments to try and close that gap. It's reached an agreement with the regulators where it will reduce the payments and Sir Philip and his family will make good the difference. And that agreement with the pension regulator has very important political and legal ramifications should anything go wrong with Arcadia further down the line. But he still had to close certain outlets. We've talked about Topshop earlier. Which other stores are going to be affected by this CVA? All of them, all of the chains. So 23 stores will shut within the next year. And that seems like quite a low number out of 566. But the reality, according to people in the commercial property world, is that the final number will be many more than that, possibly into three figures. That's because lots of stores are coming off lease anyway, and because over the three-year period of the CVA, there are lots of opportunities sort of written into the terms for either the landlords or for Arcadia to end a lease early and close a store. And that has raised questions really over the future of some of the other brands. We know already that Evans and Miss Selfridge are going to move to a more wholesale type business model, so most of their stores will close. One wonders how long things like Dorothy Perkins and Wallace and Burton might last, because as one marketing expert said to me last week, if these stores didn't exist, would you go out of your way to invent them? So how does he turn this round? If these brands are not long for this world, even if he's able to have a little bit more success with Topshop, is there really a turnaround strategy in all of this? Well, it's fair to say that many people think there isn't and uh, that what there is is too vague and too threadbare. So we know that he's basically planned to invest £135 million over three years, roughly split half and half, into improving the stores and improving the website and the online logistics. The problem with that, well, there are two, really. Um, £135 million over three years is £45 million a year. Next, which has around the same number of stores, spends £150 million every year. ASOS spends £200 million every year, and Marks & Spencers is currently spending £350 million every year. So you can see that those figures are a long way short of what rivals are spending. And the other thing is that who is going to oversee all this? Sir Philip has basically called the shots at Arcadia for many years. Most of the people in senior management positions there are his key lieutenants. A lot of people are saying to me, where's the new blood? Where's the fresh thinking? Where are the new ideas? So question marks about the turnaround strategy. And many people even opposed the CVA plan itself. Certain landlords didn't support it in the UK. And I hear now that some American landlords have launched a legal challenge against Topshop's bankruptcy in the US. This opposition to what he's trying to do, how serious is it? As you correctly say, the CVA in the UK only got through by the skin of its teeth. It's the first time that we've really seen landlords push back hard against one of this. The business in the US is slightly different. Arcadia is putting its US subsidiary into administration 
and the landlords, there are 11 top shop stores in the United States, and the landlords of those stores are upset that assets belonging to Topshop in the United States might be repatriated to the UK without due legal process in America. The Americans can't quite believe that the CVA process in the UK has no recourse to the courts. It's a creditor-agreed process compared to the sort of Chapter 11 format in the United States. They find that horrifying. I don't think it's too serious in the sense that it's a small number of stores and a small number of dollars and the administration and CVA process is all in England and Wales under English law. But any form of legal entanglement in America is likely to be expensive, and it's just another expensive distraction that the company could do without at this stage. It certainly sounds like that. If I can now turn to Jonathan Ford. For many listeners, there will be echoes of Sir Philip's past business difficulties here. It's not the first business that he has steered to the brink of bankruptcy. You covered the case of British home stores in quite some detail a few years ago. Can you just remind us what happened there? Yeah, well, there's a strong sense of deja vu about all of this, I think. Uh, Going back three to four years, Philip Green had a very similar problem. Slightly different in that he himself was a landlord of a great deal of British home stores shops. But he got himself into a situation where the business was declining and had a big pension fund deficit. And he basically was obviously not in a mood to invest more of his personal fortune in turning the business around. So he found a buyer in the shape of an entrepreneur called Mr. Chappelle, Dominic Chappelle who owned it for about a year, didn't pay very much for it, didn't really put much money into it, spent most of that year, I think, negotiating with the various creditors, the pension fund and the landlord. And in the end, the whole thing fell into insolvency. And Philip Green had to come back to the table at the insistence of the pension fund regulator and a lot of politicians in Parliament who felt he had a responsibility to make good the losses in the pension fund to protect some of the pensioners who would otherwise lose out. And indeed, that's what he did after a little bit of wriggling on the hook and shouting. So there are real parallels. I think there's a broader parallel, which is if you look at the long sweep of the retail career of Philip Green, what you see is an entrepreneur who essentially took over a large number of retail properties around the turn of the millennium in a kind of great rush. He bought one after another. He bought British Home Stores in 2000 after I think he had bought Sears a few years before and basically he was on the expansion path. He timed it well in two respects. One, he took over just as the cost of manufacturing products fell very sharply because of the opening up of the sort of Chinese market for production. And indeed, he had a very close relationship with a man called Richard Caring, now best known for the ownership of various restaurants, but in those days was somebody who pioneered quite a lot of the practices of outsourcing production to China. And he was very clever about bringing in clothing, cutting the cost of the sourcing of products and getting them sourced quite quickly, and basically selling them at lower prices, but of course, prices that were significantly more profitable than they had been when you made clothes in Europe. The second thing I think he did was he had a very keen understanding, certainly in the case of BHS, 
about the possibilities, if you like, for stripping properties out of retail chains. In the case of BHS, he sold a number of them to himself or to his family company and separated them from the retail chain itself. And for a time, that was a very lucrative strategy. Of course, we can now see with Arcadia that, you know, the fortunes of retail properties and the retailers who use them are in many ways linked. So you can't stave off things forever. And I think the other side of it, apart from what Jonathan has mentioned about online and the way in which the competition has caught up, I think the truth is that the magical story about Chinese costs is not quite what it was. And I think there are other questions about the way that retailers conduct their business to do with the kind of sustainability of their products. Do we want the same disposable fashion? And I don't claim to have the answers to those, but I think those you know, are things which Philip Green with his very simple, very clear strategy is probably not the best man to answer. His strategy also, though, in both the case of VHS and Arcadia, or certainly his personal strategy, could be described as extracting as much as he could in dividends for himself and his family, while in both instances not investing enough back into the business and certainly not putting enough money into the pension funds. Would that be a fair criticism? Broadly, I think it's unarguable that his strategy was one in which money tended to flow one way out of the properties once he had bought them. He took very large dividends. BHS, I'm more familiar with, he took very large dividends out of BHS. Then when BHS started to get into difficulty because it was underinvested, he made a brief attempt to put some money in to see if he could turn it round. But when it became clear that it was a bit more stubborn, we went back to just sort of hunkering down. And I think in terms of the pensions, well, obviously, a lot of companies, one needs to be fair here, a lot of companies across the spectrum have got problems with pension deficits. I think the fact that you had this tycoon who owned so much of the high street, who had effectively extracted so much personal money in the form of dividends paid offshore to his family in Monaco did put him in a position where he was certainly an easy target, if you like, if people wanted to look for a situation where somebody with a responsibility for a large number of workers was really standing behind the promises. And I think that's where he came unstuck. And his personal reputation obviously suffered with the allegations over the tax avoidance or the use of tax advantage jurisdictions. His reputation also potentially being damaged by more recent allegations of sexual harassment in the US, which he denies, but will nonetheless go to court this week. Isn't this just the kind of thing that his business does not need now if it's trying to turn itself around? Yeah, I think that's true. I think he was a great showman and he was very good at creating a sense of excitement around the sort of clothing he sold. He had friendships with a lot of sort of very famous models. He did London Fashion Week. He was a sort of larger-than-life figure. I think all of this, you know, the criticism he's faced, the demands for the removal of his knighthood, as you say, these accusations in the US, they don't make you very much want to strut around in public and make a big noise about yourself. And I think, you know, one of the things that has been noticeable is he has pulled back from a lot of these public appearances. I think last year, Topshop didn't do a big London Fashion Week thing with all the models. And I think the other thing is, obviously, this has taken a bit of a bite out of his personal fortune. So 
he may be a little more anxious about spending the money. And just finally, if this CVA plan were not to work, if Topshop disappears from the high street, what does that mean for the retail sector and for Philip Green's legacy? Well, it obviously won't burnish his legacy if the whole thing disappears. I think, once again, to be fair, we're going through an incredibly turbulent time on the high street. And I think a number of quite well-known brands may not be around in a few years' time if these sort of conditions continue. Personally, I just feel Topshop, in a way, was very much a creature of a certain time. That time, the sort of very cheap, quick-to-market, high-street version of couture had its moment. Whether it will continue to have its moment or whether it will be done in different ways, I don't know. And Jonathan, how would you view a failure of the CVA and the possible disappearance of Topshop from the high street forever? I think in business terms, it would be very significant because of Sir Philip's previous position as the self-proclaimed king of the high street, you know, once a very big player. What would it mean to consumers? I suspect with the passage of time, very, very little, almost sadly so, perhaps. I mean, it's 10 years, more or less, since Woolworths disappeared from the high streets overnight. Few people talk about that anymore. CNA pulled out of the UK. Nobody talks about that anymore. Maplin, Toys R Us. These are all brands that have disappeared and people scarcely seem to notice. And maybe that's the point, that the brands have become less relevant to the point that it didn't really matter if they weren't there anymore. That was Matthew Vincent, Lombard editor, talking to Jonathan Ford, city editor, and Jonathan Ely, retail correspondent. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our recent episodes on KKR's Bayer for German media company Axel Springer, China's role as a global power, or the Iran-US standoff in the Gulf, you can find them on all the usual podcast platforms. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.